1: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible
0: tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Welcome to the
2: podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, I have to start by asking you,
3: do you play any musical instruments? Do I play any musical instruments? (sighs) Truthfully, Molly, if you walk into my
1: bedroom,
3: you'll see an acoustic guitar sitting quite close to my bed as though I play it very often to perhaps strum myself to sleep (laughs) when in fact... I haven't played it in like two years. Oh. Um, but I did teach myself to play the guitar and <laughs> quite a
2: long time ago, I also taught myself to play the flute. You're quite a self-taught genius. Oh, yes, Molly. <laughs> <This> is true. If <laughs> you see an instrument, and you must, must teach yourself to play it. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but,
3: um, you know, I, I, Dabbled in the in the flute and did the you, guitar.
2: Did you ever consider maybe playing the tuba? The tuba? No, because I picked up
3: the guitar and the flute because there was a guitar and a flute in my house growing up.
2: False. I think that you didn't play the tuba because you knew of the gender stereotypes associated with it.
3: Yes, in homeschool, the gender <laughs> stereotypes were crushing. Um, I had to pick my instruments carefully lest my fake classmates really you know, make fun of me.
2: Well, that's where you had the advantage, because if you had been in a school with real classmates, they might have really bullied you, because today we're going to talk about the gender stereotyping of musical instruments, and, you know, you you make jokes, Kristen, but here's one, score one for the homeschool kids who could pick their instruments without the crushing gender stereotypes. <laughs> And, uh, possible bullying of their classmates.
3: Now, before listeners think that we have totally gone off the deep end by talking about the gendering of musical instruments, there is a, some, there is some logic behind this. Okay. Well, this all got started because a listener of ours, Robbie McKay, um, at Queen's University in Canada studies musical education and he suggested that we do a podcast on women and music which he, is a big topic huge topic and he sent us um some research that he had done with uh with links to other research and one thing that kept popping up over and over again in all these studies was this gender stereotyping with musical instruments like determining whether or not boys pick the drums because they want to play drums or because it's more masculine and why do, you know, why are girls going to play, you know, the flute like me instead of say a tuba? Um, and it's something that researchers have actually been studying pretty intensively since the late 1970s. There is this large study conducted by these researchers, Abels and Porter, who basically polled a large group of college students on um, gender associations with different types of instruments. They kind of created a gender spectrum, if you will, for musical instruments. And they found that, you know, not surprisingly, drums and guitar are on the male end, the piccolo, the flute, the violin, the clarinet are on the female end, smack dab in the middle, the saxophone.
2: The saxophone, we have learned, is the most uh, non-gender associated instrument. For every Bill Clinton on the Arsenio Hall show, mm-hmm. there's a Lisa Simpson. That's right. So it's, uh, it's very even handed. And there have been, since Abels and Porter put out their work, there have been a lot of studies that try to unravel why children, you know, precious innocent children who haven't been uh, tainted by our gender, gender wars mm-hmm. can automatically assume that some instruments fall on a on a male-female spectrum. You know, they've done things where they've tried to put uh, children beh- uh, in front of musicians who are playing the opposite instrument of what the previous children had assigned as masculine to see if that would change their minds. Um, they've done things where they just showed them the picture of the instrument and the sound of it. You know, they've done all these different things that we'll kind of get into to figure out why children do this, if it can be changed, and if it's actually harming them. Uh, from reaching their full musical potential.
3: Right, if there's like a certain instrument they want to play, say if a a little boy wants to play a flute, is he going to pick up a guitar instead because he doesn't want to be deemed a sissy? And a lot of the research continually comes back to um, not only the fact that, yes, these kids are aware um, from a pretty young age of these sort of gender um, attachments to different instruments, but it's also... The music teacher and the parents who have the biggest impact, because with these younger, um, music students, the teacher is going to actually assign the instruments for them to play. And so they might naturally give a tuba to a larger boy and give mm-hmm. a piccolo to a little lady. And, um, you know, then on the flip side of that, a parent might f- kind of freak out if, um, if the, the instrument that the son or daughter chooses does not necessarily match up with their gender ideals, gender ideals, gender constructs, if you will.
2: That's actually something, Kristen, that Summer H. Butu picked up on, uh, in an article in the magazine Canadian Music Educator. She writes about being a teacher first in a coeducational school and then in a single sex classroom. Uh, when she taught in the coed school, she assigned the students their instruments or, you know, she, you know, did little things to help them pick it out and all the students were thrilled with their instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so excited. And then everything was fine for a week until she got calls from the parents who said, you know, my daughter is not going to play the horn. She is a dainty little girl. She cannot play the French horn. She will not be playing the trumpet. Give her, give her a clarinet. Yes. Give her a woodwind. And then six years later, she found herself teaching in that single sex setting that I mentioned, and the girls felt more free in this environment to pick instruments that they might not have picked in a coeducational classroom.
3: And the interesting thing that she found through um, studying uh, this, this idea of, you know, gender and musical instruments, it's that for girls who pick typically male instruments, they're seen as trailblazers and pioneers. Whereas for boys, it's a much more difficult process for them to play a stereotypically female instrument because they they tend to be ridiculed a lot more if they choose to play something like a clarinet as opposed to, oh, I don't know, Molly, a trombone.
2: Mm-hmm. And even the girls in the single sex setting were able to realize that that even though they weren't being taught with boys, they knew that you know, they did have it a little bit easier than males did when it came to picking different instruments. And they specifically said that the flute is the most difficult for males to play in terms of societal expectation and perception.
3: Now, on the flip side of that, we ran across another study trying to figure out what the least gendered musical instruments are. And I mentioned earlier that the saxophone is the androgynous ideal. okay? But the other instruments that have the least gendered attachments to them are the African drums, the cornet, the French horn, saxophone, of course, and the tenor horn. Interesting.
2: Yeah, so a lot of these kind of light brass. They can be in the middle. Well, that makes sense because a lot of the other research we had said that girls are going to play up high. Uh They want very high tones, dainty instruments, um, and the boys want down low. They want to get down and dirty, Mm -hmm. and uh, they also like difficult instruments is what one study found because they want to show you know, that they are mastering something. Now, the more research we did, the more we realized, too, that this
3: isn't just an issue that is unique to American classrooms today. The roots of... This gendering of musical instruments, not surprisingly, goes back not only in history, but also to different cultures. For instance, um, I post a little fun fact of the day on our Facebook page, uh, not too long ago when I was, that comes from this research saying that, for instance, in Victorian times, women who played the cello had to play it side saddle so that they wouldn't be sitting there with this giant instrument in between, um, in between their legs. And throughout all these different cultures, you'll find these instruments that are reserved specifically for men and for women. And in some like men can't, women at least aren't even allowed to touch these very sacred male instruments. And it's more rare to find the flip side of that where female instruments can't be touched by men.
2: And you're talking about a study that we found called Sounds of Power, an overview of musical instruments and gender by Veronica Doubleday, which goes into different practices throughout these different cultures and uh, really takes a very deep look, not just at the relationship between who's playing the instrument and who's observing that person playing the instrument, but also just what went into making the instrument, who made it, how they made it. Um, what sort of gender cues they installed within that instrument? You know, there are some, I wanted to call this episode things you don't know about lutes because depending on the kind of lute you're playing, you are sending all sorts of gender messages. Yes. Um, but she goes into not just your typical band, you know, band class instruments, but things that. Uh, through ancient times, been played as ways also to signify gods. And then she gets mm-hmm. into the gender of the gods. Right. There are some instruments that you play when you're trying to summon a male god versus a female god. And uh, she says, you know, it's impossible to play these instruments in those cultures without, you know, bringing to mind all of these gender politics issue. So do you have a great example that we can throw out there, Kristen? Yeah, I do have a great example.
3: She mentions, and this goes back to um not just the shape or the sound of an instrument, but actually the materials used to make it. And she says that in eastern Iran, makers of the long-necked dutar lute prefer to use the wood from a female mulberry tree to that of a male, because it's less, um, it's drier wood and therefore sounds better.
2: Female mulberry tree. Here's another one. Uh, there are these drums in Indonesia, and, uh, they, according to her, illustrate consistently virile associations with, with framed drums. These drums are always played by men and as mystically potent objects may be bequeathed from father to son. Performers are members of devotional brotherhoods or male religious or secular ensembles, and the drumming accompanies text praising the male prophet. Now, this gendering of instruments is kind of interesting because
3: uh, while the construction makes it male, gives it this instrument, this lute, if you will, well, not if you will, it is a lute, <laughs> gives this lute. A male identity, it is meant for women to play. So there's this relationship between like male, female union that Doubleday also talks about. But she says that in Yemen, the point where the strings of the Quanbas lute are attached to the base of the instrument is called the little penis, indicating a male identity for the instrument. And she says that another researcher has noted that this conforms to a legend about the origin of the Arab lute as derived derived from the
2: body of a dead boy. So that's an instance where the player and the instrument come together in some sort of union Mm -hmm. and to... You know, put up with heteronormative ideals, then a woman would only play an instrument that signified a boy, whereas vice versa would happen. One thing that she points out that um, is kind of interesting is the naming of instruments. Mm-hmm. She talks about how the bells, church bells in England, have male names like Big Ben in Westminster, uh, Oxford's Great Tom. And then she points out that we're not past naming things today. Mm hmm think of B.B. King's guitar, Lucille, and that's another example where a man is playing something that's been signified as a female. Mm-hmm.
3: Now, th- I want to just jump right ahead, though, to the old saxophone, because we can't leave the saxophone dangling, because some people have probably wondered, like, why is a saxophone considered this ideal, gender ideal, in the music world? And Doubleday really hits it home, if you will. She nails it. when She, she plays this, a solo? She... I guess she plays a solo. She
2: nails the solo. She
3: nailed. That's what we're looking for. She nails the solo. Now she says that um, the various physical forms of the saxophone, its shape, can be interpreted as either masculine, um, and she refers to the soprano fa- saxophone as especially phallic looking, or feminine, and she says especially the S-shaped models. And the other issue relates to its um, it's straddling woodwind and brass instruments and then also the tonality of it it's not necessarily it can go pretty high but it can also go pretty low so it 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 just it spans this gender spectrum and so that's why a lot of these studies will point out that right in the middle we have the saxophone
2: and double day you know finishes up by saying that obviously we're probably not gonna view lutes as these gendered you know objects forever that this sort of um all these, you know, meanings we put into the instruments are shifting or people are choosing to be less cognizant of them. And I think that that really echoes what the educator found in the single sex classroom mm-hmm. that, you know, even though uh, these these uh, stereotypes still exist, they are breaking down. In fact, uh, Abel's who championed that study we talked about at the very beginning of the podcast, did a similar one year three decades later to see if. These gender stereotypes still held true. He found that, um, they are, re- they are going down a little bit that people are, you know, choosing to see instruments as less, uh, associated with one particular gender than another. And, uh, then it gets into what can we do to stop that? There was one thing in the Sunday Times that pointed out that, you know, the single sex classrooms, classroom teachers experience was not unusual that when you are in a, um, all female or all male ensemble, you, have more freedom to choose. And also you kind of have to play the instrument that is not in your comfort zone because if you don't, you won't have a balanced,
1: mm-hmm. balanced
2: sound. So they recommended, you know, as much as possible trying to, especially when the kids are young, you know, put them into sort of segregated groups just to get them playing different instruments so that by the time they come back together for something like high school band, they've all had experience playing different things. They've seen different genders playing different things and those old, Stereotypes that uh, you know a teacher might have inadvertently handed down, or their parents might have inadvertently handed down, will be you know wiped away a little bit more. And this is also something that the National Association for Musical
3: Education has looked at as well. This issue of uh, of ensuring that uh, teachers aren't uh, giving out, making sure that teachers aren't assigning musical instruments just based on you know purely on size and on. Gender, And they really recommend that the teachers remain cognizant of these kind of stereotypes that they might have in mind and really try to uh, hone in on children's
2: interests Mm -hmm.
3: and their just natural talents rather than just making a judgment call based solely on their appearance and also addressing the issue of, uh, you know, what about the parents? You know, you have to deal with their reactions as well if you give their daughter a tuba.
2: And I think one point they made that would be really easy to implement, even just in your own home with your own children, is just to to dial up the YouTube and find clips of women playing typically masculine instruments and vice versa, finding men playing what we consider the more feminine instruments, just to show them that, you know, it does exist that people cross over, for lack of a better word, with their instruments.
3: And I think, and we'll get to this in our kind of follow-up podcast, if you will, on women performers in music. Um, you're going to, there's, there's, it's becoming more accepted in general with popular music for men and women to kind of cross over those barriers. It's not strange to see a woman with a guitar. It's not strange to see a woman playing the, uh, the drums. and It's not strange to see men picking up different instruments. As well, Sting plays the lute. Sting plays the
2: lute, Molly. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm really obsessed with lutes now.
3: <laughs> and just to close things out uh, and drive the point home that, yeah, it does matter that we facilitate children's interests in music, whether... You know, a boy wants to play a piccolo or a girl wants to play a trombone. Uh, we wanted to toss out a couple of facts also from the National Association for Musical Education that we hear all the time, you know, because we're always worried about saving the music and all of that. But it's always good to be reminded of the importance of music in education because, for instance, children with music training have better verbal memory and they are better with spoken language, and they have markedly different brain development and also improved memory over the course of a year compared to kids who do not receive musical training. And that brain development manifests itself later down the road with higher SAT scores and higher math and English scores.
2: And those statistics, they even stripped out all the socioeconomic factors Mm -hmm. that might have influenced that because my first instinct was, oh, a school that has a music program... Have more money than a different school. No, that wasn't a factor. Even kids who were in very simple music programs that didn't have a lot of money still demonstrated those uh, amazing brain changes. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty cool.
3: Yeah, so music is good. It's good for the ears and it's good for the
2: brain. And for the soul. And for the soul. And uh, rest assured, like Kristen said, this will not be the last time we visit music and women and gender and all that good stuff because it's such a broad topic. But We did start with instruments, so we'd love to hear your tales of learning to play.
3: Yeah, women out there toting around a double bass,
2: men toting around a harp. We'd love to
3: hear from you. Yes, please. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. In the meantime, we'll
2: read an email or two. I'm going to start with one from Rebecca, who is writing response to the Women in Art podcast. And she writes, I would say that the next time you're in the New York City area, skip the overpriced and overcrowded MoMA and take a short ride out to Brooklyn on the 2-3 train and visit the Brooklyn Museum. I'm not sure whether or not it's a conscious effort on their part, but I feel like they always have a good representation of current female artists. It is, of course, the permanent home to Judy Chicago's renowned feminist piece, The Dinner Party. And the last time I was there, I was treated to an extensive and very moving solo exhibit by Kiki Smith and worked by another favorite contemporary female artist, Kara Walker. So thank you, Rebecca. And anyone who's headed to New York anytime soon, there's a a travel tip. All right. I've got a long
3: distance relationship story here from Mark. And he was in a long distance relationship and has now reunited with his love. He says, we went to high school together, never spoke, met after college and started seriously dating soon after. Unfortunately, we got together knowing full well that she was leaving a month later for AmeriCorps in Washington State. We're from New Hampshire. I told people this, something to the effect of, oh, she's moving to Washington for about a year. And they usually said, oh, that's not too bad. A quick flight out of Boston and cheap, too. To which I always had to say, Washington State. And then they said, oh. So the whole time she was there, a lot of stuff you guys mentioned in your podcast did happen. I was jealous of her friends, that they could see her, and I couldn't. I wasn't suspicious, and I didn't doubt her. I just envied the people she got to see, the people she got to go out with, and experience things with here that even I didn't have the chance to do with her yet. It was particularly interesting because we were so early in our relationship, still learning things about each other, so at times it was especially challenging. But for some reason, we were both extremely confident that we would be okay because we said in the beginning... We wouldn't have gotten into this if we didn't think we could do it. I totally agree with what you said about the dichotomy between the visit and actually living together. It's hard to adjust to you, so we've learned to kind of relish time apart. And now we've been going strong for over a year. How exciting. Thank you, Mark, and everyone else who has sent us your wonderful long-distance relationship stories. They're all so happy. It's yeah, they really are. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Dreams can come true. It's kind of sickening, true. actually. Um Well, if you'd like to sicken us further... Um, or delight us. <laughs> or this, warm this our hearts. Cake. I'm just joking. Yeah, Molly's joking. Uh, it's momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can post it for, post your relationship success for all of our fans to see on Facebook. And you can also follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. and then finally, you can check out our blog and you can find that at howstuffworks.com. For more
0: on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready, are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
1: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since
0: 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter.